Hey y'all, I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 219. So we're keeping my parents' dog for just a little bit. And it's an English bulldog too. So lots of O'Hare. Not Catherine O'Hare, like actual hair. (laughs) And she Catherine O'Hara. But their dog, when he was little, was super sick. So he wasn't allowed to be socialized because like he couldn't get too hot. He couldn't get excited. All the things. So he just isn't very good with other dogs. Well, they finally get along. Yay! And they are playing. Really hasn't been that bad getting them to actually like each other. But it's so fun to watch them play, you know, because yeah. God Almighty. I mean, they will like bump into a piece of furniture and it will move. These Because they, <laughs> they weigh about the same, even though Jax is about seven inches taller because their bulldog is a potato with legs oh he is they both weigh like 75 pounds and so when they both are tussling and they they will literally bump into the coffee table and it will shift a couple of inches <laughs> when he first started staying here he would not even lay down in the same room with jacks like he was like up panting you know would not yeah. even lay down and so then they started laying down in the same room and then i got them both in my lap at one point <laughs> again all the hair but they both just lay there and slept. That's amazing. Well, hopefully y'all aren't sleeping on this deal from apostrophe. Oh, Lord. But that is true. It is a really good deal. And apostrophe is sponsoring this podcast episode. And now it's that time that it's getting hot. You know what that calls us? Swamp ass. Well, for me, like buttony. You know, some little bumps on your booty. Well, if you want to get rid of that buttony, Bagney, chestney, and just regular old face acne, apostrophe is for you. So here's what you do. You go to their website. You know we're going to give it to you. Apostrophe.com slash creep. You go to their website. You take a quiz that is going to figure out all your skincare needs. Is it wrinkles? Is it rosacea? Is it all the knees that we talked about? Like the bee's knees. You talk about your skin goals and medical history during that quiz. And then you have an appointment with a board certified dermatologist and they create a personalized treatment plan that is specifically for your unique skin. All you have to do is, once you do the quiz, you take a couple of little selfies. Y'all, if you've listened to us talk about worst pictures on the planet, like we could use those for like some scared straight ads or something. (laughs) And then you have a phone call. You don't even have to do a face-to-face. It was a phone call Mm because, you know, they've already seen your face because you sent in those terrible selfies. (laughs) Yes. And they do it around your time. So again, you're not having to go wait in a waiting room with other people, anything. You can be in your car. You, you could be on your couch anywhere. And they had so many appointments available whenever I was scheduling mine. Like it was so cool because you could do it before work. You could do it after work. You don't have to take off half a day to go sit in a doctor's office to get good quality skincare yes. from a board certified dermatologist. So we've got a special deal just for the listeners of this podcast. If you want to save $15 off your first visit with an apostrophe provider, go to apostrophe.com slash creep and then use the promo code creep. That's C-R-E-E-P. Once you go to apostrophe.com slash creep, you click begin visit and then use the promo code creep at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. $5 makes me holler. I mean, other things make her holler, but this not ad appropriate. <laughs> so that's apostrophe, A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash creep. Use the code creep. That's C-R-E-E-P. You got any TV shows you want to tell us about? I don't. <laughs> 
shock of the century. I know. Well, I do have one thing. So mm-hmm. I've been using Criminal Minds as my go to sleep TV. Good one. And uh, it's taken me, oh, I don't know, 10 seasons to notice that Jim Clemente is a co-producer. Oh, okay, cool. Well, I know him from the true crime world. He was an FBI profiler. First, he was like the person that they would, like he would advise them Mm -hmm. on certain things, but he became a co-producer. But I was like, Jim Clemente, wait, I know that name. I know him, but I don't actually know him. But I just know him from like CrimeCon and just being on different podcasts and stuff. Oh, all the times you've gone to CrimeCon? You know, (laughs) the posters, okay? I mean, I'd see the posters and I'm like, man, I want to meet Jim Clemente. BTW, that might not be how you say his name. (laughs) Meanwhile, it's like Clementine. (laughs) Well, I know that just because that's a type of orange and that's food. And I know that. Well, I knew that you knew that based on how thick your accent became when you said, I know that. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You know what? You don't love me anymore. But can we talk about people who do? Oh, you mean Patreoners. Yes. I think I've lost my Patreoners. <laughs> Golly, that was terrible. You mean like Amber M. from Illinois? Paula M. from Tennessee. Emily D. from Missouri. Amanda C. from Tennessee. Dahlia J. from Florida. And Jenny M. from Washington. Thank y'all so freaking much for joining Patreon. We hope that you're enjoying all of the good good, as Carrie says. You're getting a bonus episode a week. You get some phone backgrounds you know, all the little extra slices, things like that. If you want to shout out in the bonus content, go to www.patreon.com forward slash the APC podcast. And you know what, y'all, about those uh, phone, whatever that she just called them? Wallpapers? Yeah, that. Um, Donna makes those in Canvas. Canva. Canva. I know, I get them confused. We talk about it every time. (laughs) Either way, she actually makes them from that. I'm sorry. She is my mama right now in a moo and calling it canvas. <laughs> okay, y'all. I've been sleeping on moo-moos. I like them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know how Colby and I went to that work party and I went as the mom from Monsters, Inc. And I got to wear a moo all night? Well, it's really fucking comfortable. <laughs> so I bought another one. <laughs> so now I have two. One's long, one's short. One's, you know, not that. One's very sexy. <laughs> Just kidding. It's not. The one you wore... Monday? Probably. Yeah, yeah, that one. It's, uh, I'm just joking because it's short. Okay. It's not sexy. No. <laughs> no. $6 at Walmart. That's the cheapest fucking pajamas. And they have pockets. <laughs> Although my phone keeps falling out of my pockets. Colby was like, those aren't very good pockets. <laughs> oh, gosh. I could not be sexier right now in my moo and Colby's socks. And your moo tucked under your boobs. <laughs> We're just going to be real, real right now. Well, girl, it's hot. I'm telling you, you are my mama. (laughs) Well, she wouldn't have socks, but. (laughs) She'd have on her flip-flops like you. That's where you get it from. Oh, my gosh. I used to wear moo-moos, though. You still got that coffee one? It was real cute. That red one? (laughs) I do still have it. Can I have it? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The story that I'm doing this time is not a recommendation. I know, shocker. But it's an episode of Forensic Files that I have seen multiple times. It's season eight, episode nine. And, you know, Forensic Files is one of my many go-tos, go to sleep watching TV. Well, the other night, 
this one was on. And I was like, oh my God, I remember this one. I've seen this one quite a few times. And I was like, man, I should do this one for an episode. Of course, I freaking like stay up watching it. And I'm like, I've seen this like at least three times. Go the fuck to sleep. Why are you staying up watching this episode? But I'm just like enthralled in it because it's so ridiculous. So this is a story of Janice Trahan. So it's spelled Trahan, but I polled my Louisiana friends because here we grew up with somebody named Trahan and it was pronounced Trahan, but on the episode of Forensic Files, they said Trahan. So I polled all of my Louisiana friends and they were like, it depends on where she's from. Well, she's from Lafayette. And they were like, okay, there it's actually pronounced Trahan. One of them used to teach like Louisiana, like history, something or other. So like they know like all the kind of different dialects and stuff. So I trust his opinion. Vic, I'm looking at you. If I'm wrong, I'm coming after you. Okay, so picture it. We're in Lafayette, Louisiana, and it's the early 1980s. So Janice had just finished school to become an LPN, which is a licensed practical nurse. And she had started her job at a hospital in Lafayette. She's married with a kid when she meets a doctor. His name is Richard Schmidt. Now, Janice falls for Richard because of all the things. He's intelligent. And he's rich because he's a doctor. I mean, I think it probably helped. Mm -hmm. But she's married and has a kid? Yes. And he's married and has three kids. Oh my gosh. Also, how do they meet? So he was a doctor where she was a nurse. Oh, she's a nurse. Okay. Some stuff did say like she was his assistant, but she wasn't an assistant. She was an LPN. But anyway, they met like while she was at orientation. So I feel like he just was like circling, Mm -hmm. finding a prey, honestly. Of course, it didn't take long for things to develop into a physical relationship. I've watched Grey's. I know what goes on in the on-call room. And the medical rooms and the closets (laughs) and anywhere else people can get to. And as, you know, most affairs go, there are promises made that... I'm going to leave my wife for you. I'm going to leave my kids and my wife and all the things. Here's my question. I'm truly not trying to like bash on people who their relationship starts as an affair because it's worked for some people. Some people have their relationship started with an affair and they were married for 40 years after that. Sometimes it works that way. Yeah. But like if you were starting a relationship with someone and they were like, I'm going to leave my spouse and kids for you. That That's not a red flag for you. Right. The whole, like, I'm going to abandon my kids for you is a, it's a red flag for me, I feel like. Yeah. And again, I know for some people it works. I mean, I know people who have their relationship started with an affair and they've been married for like 40 years. But it's like, they didn't like abandon their kids for it, you know? Yeah. So we're going to actually jump forward a little bit. And Janice actually did leave her marriage for Richard. And of course, you know that Richard didn't leave his marriage Uh for her. Of course. And it was very much of like, I promise I'm going to leave my wife, blah, 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 blah. But he never did. Right. Now, in the episode of Forensic Files, it goes on to tell us that from there, Janice got pregnant with Richard's baby and she gave birth to their son in 1991. And that Richard financially supported her And told her, like, hey, I'm going to leave my wife, I'm going to leave my wife, but never did. But what the Forensic Files didn't tell was that throughout their relationship, Richard refused to wear a condom. Ugh. And would not allow Janice to use a diaphragm for birth control. Wow. But Janice could not take birth control pills 
because they caused migraines for her. Mm, been there. Been there. So this was actually not her first pregnancy with Richard. He has so many red flags. So many. In fact, though, this was her fourth pregnancy. Oh, my gosh. And he pressured her into having abortions for the other three pregnancies. Wow. And it wasn't until this one that she was like, I'm not doing it. So there's obviously a lot happening in this relationship that's pretty fucking toxic. Well, by the time that their son, they they called JT, by the time JT was born and she was raising him, she was like, this is dumb. Like, he is never going to leave his wife. He is never going to be with me. Like, this is dumb. It's time to move on. But every time Janice tried to move on, Richard came for her, like, in a bad way. Like, he would blackmail her because he had taken some sexy photos before, and he would blackmail her, basically, or threaten her, I guess I should say. Not so much blackmail, but threaten her to be like, I'm going to post these, like, all over work, on, like, all the bulletin boards and all of that. So you better not leave me, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show these to everybody. Oh, my gosh. First of all, as an employer, that I'm not, but if I were an employer, I would have a bigger problem with the person that posted it yes. than the person who was in the pictures. Because that's something private. You mm-hmm. do whatever the fuck you want to behind your closed doors if it's legal. But you, sir... With the fucking revenge porn, which now is, like, illegal and there's, like, more. But this is, like, early 1990s. Right. Where she would be seen as the slut Mm -hmm. and nothing would fucking happen to him. Right. But really, that says a whole lot more about you than it does about her. Yeah. And if anybody thinks that it says more about her than him, you need to look inward because you got a fucking problem. Yes. I feel like let's normalize sexy pictures with your partner. Yes. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Because it's like, everybody's like, oh, my God, it could end up on the internet later when you want to run for governor. Okay. And if it does, it does. Because everybody fucking takes naked pictures. Yes. And, again, it says more about the people leaking it than it does about you as the person who took a picture of your body to show your partner that you were supposed to be able to love and trust. Yeah. Because all these, like, sex tapes and all that getting leaked, that is fucked up. Yes. And it should be illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe now. I don't know. But, like, back in the day, like, the Paris Hilton and the Kim Kardashian sex tapes and all that, like, that is so fucked up. Yeah. Especially if someone's getting recorded without their consent. Right. But anyway, that was a whole tangent. But it just pissed me off that he was like, I'm going to share all your pictures. I'm going to post them at work. Okay, well, then you should get fired if you do that. Find another fucking job, Doc. Right? I know. Did his wife know about this? I don't know. I never saw anything about that. And they may have had an arrangement. Because if, as the wife, if I knew that you had a child with someone else, and so some of our marital assets were Mm -hmm. going to someone else... I would be pissed. Yeah. Now, does the kid deserve to be financially oh, supported sure. by the dad? Absolutely. But he had an extramarital affair. Mm-hmm. And so now I would be like, my kids are going, not going without, you know, they're not going without. But like, yeah. my kids don't have as much because now the money's going off somewhere else because you, you, because of you. Right. So, um, bye. Right. I know. I'm going to take my part and I'm going to go. And then you can pay me 
like you're paying her. Exactly. And then good luck surviving on that. Because I'm going to take you for all your fucking worth. Right. But there was way more to it, too. When Janice would try to go on dates, he would show up. He would, like, stalk her and her dates. He would try to intimidate the men. One time, he even threatened to kill one of the men. How did he have time to do this with a whole other family and a job? I don't know. I mean, again, he and his wife may have had an arrangement and she's fine with it. And that's cool. Yeah. If that's what they want, if, if that's how they want to live their life. And again, everybody's a consenting adult by all fucking means. You do you, boo. Because there is a certain status and, you know, all of that that comes along with being a doctor's wife. Yeah. Where that gives you access to things, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, she may have been cool. Been like, I'm going to go do my doctor wife thing and you go do Janice. Yeah. But eventually, 10 years into this torturous relationship, Janice finally was like, I've had enough. I, like, I'm done. I'm done with you, with your threats. I'm done with you following me and stalking me with these men. Like, we're done. I am not coming back. Janice said that he told her, if you leave me, I'll fix you. I'll fix you so no man will want you. Oh, my gosh. So, here's the thing. Richard wasn't just Janice's boyfriend. He was also her doctor. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know. If y'all could see Donna's face, I don't know. It's weird. I was like, what? And, like, he continued to be her doctor after they broke up. Very bizarre situation. Okay, now that's just not healthy. No, it's not fucking healthy. Well, part of him being her doctor is that he would come over sometimes and give her B12 shots. One night on August 4th of 1994, Richard calls to say, hey, I've got your B12 shot. I'm coming over. But it was like late at night. It was like 1030. So she was already asleep, had the kid in the bed with her. She was like, what? Uh, okay. You know, and then she like falls back asleep. Next thing she knows, he's there to give her the shot. And she's like, what? What? I don't. Can we just do this in the morning? He's like, no, I'm here now. Bloop. Gives her the injection. Well, and also that gives you energy. <laughs> right? Like, What? And she's like, okay, whatever, night, you know. This is very bizarre. Very bizarre. Well, in the following weeks, Janice starts to develop flu-like symptoms. Oh, gosh. And she's like, what the fuck is going on? So she actually went to see Richard. And she's like, well, I don't feel good. Like, you know, something's going on. I don't feel good. So he did some blood work and he's like, I mean, your white cells are a little off, like a little low, but like, it's probably just a virus. Like, suck it up, buttercup. I cannot get over that they're still doctor patient. I completely agree. Like, I understand if you're doing that while you're together. Cool, whatevs. Even then, is that not like a conflict of interest? Like, is that not like a, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, again, I, this is like beyond my, like, I don't understand doctor shit. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, I'm sure it's not. I mean, obviously he wouldn't be doing it if it was illegal, yeah. you know, as far as like his medical practice and all right. of that. But I don't know. I, I don't know. That's, I would want his opinion, but I would want someone else's opinion too. So I would have Absolutely. some other doctor anyway. That would be like a, hey, honey, uh, I'm not feeling so hot. What you think? Yeah. Go see. And then they would be like, I don't know. Go see the doctor. Right. Yeah. But that's really weird for her to be like, you're stalking me and all of this, but I'm still going to be your patient. But also, though, like they had such a toxic relationship that it's, it's something that we can't wrap our heads yeah. around. You know, you can't. I definitely don't want to. We're not victim blaming. No, we're not victim blaming. And so. It's just. Yeah, I just can't wrap my head around. Look, I had. Ugh, it's I like you work so hard to get away from him. And then to, like, have to just go see him in your 
everyday life stuff, like, does that not stir everything back up? It's like, okay, he finally stopped stalking you, and then he sees you in the office. Does it, like, make him start stalking you again? You know what I mean? But also, I don't know, I guess because I just have such a distrust of doctors anyway, me seeing someone who's done something bad and, like, threatened me anyway, like, Mm -hmm. that first time I had a flu symptom, I would have been like, he did something. Well, and I I definitely, like, I'm like that, too, about a doctor. Like, if I know you're a shit human, Mm -hmm. like, outside of doctoring, I'm not gonna (laughs) go to you. I can't can't trust you. Right. So, again, you're a shit human, I can, there's other doctors. I don't care if you're the best. I'd rather go to someone that's, like, just a little bit lower than you and is not an asshole. Yeah, So, yeah, I'm not saying this is her fault at all or anything because, hello, she's not the one who's doing anything wrong. But it's just weird to me because that would give me such anxiety Mm -hmm. having to go in there because it gives me anxiety anyway. Well, not long after she saw Richard, she had an appointment with her optometrist and she's like, dude, my eyes are hurting. Fuck. But she was also having some headaches and fatigue and all that. And so... He was like, why don't you go see this neurologist with like a sleep disorder specialist? Again, her migraines had picked up all the things. They didn't really know what was going on. So then she noticed that she was starting to have some like sinusy stuff, like swollen lump nodes, some, you know, sinus, because they were like, it's just got to be like a sinus, like a viral sinus infection because there's nothing else that it could be. Luckily. Right. So... She goes to see an ENT, and they're like, yeah, it's just a little viral sinus infection. Like, it's fine. Why do I go automatically to Lyme disease? That's what's <laughs> in my head. <laughs> so she actually sees a few other doctors, but it wasn't until she finally went to see her gynecologist that she figured out what was wrong. Oh, God. She was pregnant. What? And the- HIV positive. <gasps> oh, my God. She made the gut-riching decision to terminate her pregnancy because she's HIV positive and she didn't want to pass it along to her baby. And so she made like the hard decision of terminating the pregnancy. So of course, when you get a diagnosis of HIV, especially when you're a healthcare worker, it triggers all these things. Yes. Like you've got to, you got to tell your employer, they have to figure out where it came from because it's like, like even think about now with COVID, with the pandemic, like especially at the beginning, they were trying to track where it came from so they could kind of pinpoint where everything's coming from. So especially in 1994, when we're just coming off of the AIDS epidemic in Mm -hmm. the 80s and it's still not really an an understood disease and this is also i'm pretty sure this is before the magic johnson before he got diagnosed and it was definitely a time when people still thought that hiv was only for gay men and iv drug users there's literally a thing in research that's called the magic johnson effect because they were doing this study to figure out like people's perceptions of HIV. And of course, everybody's perceptions were one way. And then when Magic Johnson got diagnosed, it shifted people's perceptions because they were like, wait, well, this guy's got money. He's an athlete. He's all these things. He's not a drug addict. He's not a a gay man. He's got, he's all these different things that were completely opposite of everything they knew HIV to be. And they're like, oh, wait, he's actually living this healthy life. And so it shifted 
perceptions of HIV so much, it destroyed that research project. And so they call it like the Magic Johnson effect. Like, is there, did something happen while you're doing that research to completely shift the results and skew them? Learned that in my residency. (laughs) So this completely explains why she was having flu-like symptoms, swollen lymph nodes. She was having, her white blood cell count was off. Her gums were inflamed. Like she went to the dentist one time. You know, like literally all of her symptoms were because of the HIV. So like I said, it triggers all the things because did she get it from a patient that she had worked with as a nurse? Did she get it from a sexual partner? And... Richard tells his colleagues, because, you know, he's her primary care, that, oh, she's she got it because she's a slut. Oh, my gosh. She, like, goes out to the bar. She's sleeping around, blah, 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 blah. And Janice is like, actually, I'm pretty sure I got it from Richard. And I'm pretty sure he injected it. In wow. Because wow. She, yeah, because she said when he gave her that B12 injection, she said it hurt. Like it hurt like it had never hurt before. She said that when he would give it, no pain. Mm-hmm. But it was even to where like she couldn't sleep. The next morning she woke up and she's like, fuck, this is still hurting. And so he had told her that he was going to work at the emergency room because he was like injected room was like, bing, bye, I got to go. Like, I got to go to the hospital. I got to go work in the emergency room. So she even called him in the emergency room and be like, dude, I'm, this fucking hurts. And he wasn't there. And so she mm. paged him and he called her back. She was like, you fucking lied. You're not in the ER. And he was like, oh, I was up on the third floor. I had to blah, 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 blah. Uh-huh. And she's like, okay. But this fucking hurts. And he's like, oh, I guess I won't give you a shot in the dark again. Like, just made it sound like, oh, well, it's just because he couldn't see. Well, also, who does give you a shot in the dark? Well, this douchebag. Oh, my gosh. So she says, like, no, like, I really think that he did this. Yeah. And, of course, people are like, nah, This, this doctor did not inject you with HIV. Mm-hmm. So they go back and they look at all of the patients that she had been treating because she had just like a month before her B12 injection given blood. And, you know, the blood's tested for HIV. It didn't have it. So they know that like basically from this point forward mm-hmm. is when she had to have gotten it. But they tested her last like 10 sexual partners and none of them had HIV. And here's the thing too. When her gynecologist just like, I guess, like as a courtesy call to another physician, I feel like this is a HIPAA violation, but whatever, was like, bro, like she's tested positive for HIV. Like you really should get tested. Richard was like, no, I don't. And he was like, no, like you, you, like you're a, a doctor, like you need to get tested because your employer has to know if you're HIV positive. So like, like we're going to have to let the medical board know, like, yeah. You need to get tested. I feel like that's a HIPAA violation too, right? Uh, Yeah, I think so. Now, the workaround is that he was technically her primary care physician. So there is a little bit of a workaround. Yeah. But he was like, no, I don't need to be tested. Like, he just was Mm -hmm. like, no, I'm good, actually. I don't need to be tested. Yeah. So that's kind of weird. Like, okay, so all these other partners don't have it. You're the only partner that she's been with of late, and you're not going to get tested. So the police, of course, are like, I don't know. This, like, well-respected doctor and then this woman is blaming him, you know. Right. But they did their due diligence and they're like, we'll look into it. And they saw, you know, all the things that I've just told you about. And they're like, okay, let's get Richard's phone records. They find that he did, of course, call her on the night that she said to come over and give the injection. But they're like, 
where in the fuck would he get this HIV blood from? Like, you can't just like run down to the lab and like, I'm just gonna, is, is, this, <laughs> yeah. one, is this one HIV positive? I'm, I'm gonna borrow this one. Right. Like, you can't just do that, right? And they say that like, if he had a contaminated needle, he would only have like 12 hours that it was like potent for him to inject her and it actually work. I mean, I know that sounds terrible, but for him to accomplish what he was trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So the police go to Richard's office And they're trying to find all the medical records for August 4th of 1994. Because they're like, okay, his office kept, like, really good records. And when they would draw blood on somebody, next to the patient's name, there would be a sticker with, like, a barcode for the vial that they used. Like, they had very meticulous records. So the police are looking around his office. They look in his drawer of his desk, and they find the pictures that he's been threatening her with. Oh, my God. I know. He keeps them in his office drawer. Like, gross. Yes. Can you imagine, like, being one of his patients and just being like, I I don't know. That's just weird. It's just so fucking weird. So they start looking, looking, and they cannot find, like, the 1994 records. Like, they're not anywhere in his office. And so the police were just about to leave when they were like, wait, what's that over there? It was like a storage, a locked storage room. So they start digging through all of these records. And in a box marked 1982, at the very bottom was a notebook of that day's patients. Wow. And basically, the last entry for this patient We're going to call him Don. For Don said, like, the lavender cap, Dr. Schmidt. But it didn't have, like, the barcode thing next to it saying it had been, like, taken to the lab. So this patient had blood drawn, but something happened in transit where it didn't get where everybody else's got. Yeah. So the police call this Don guy, and they're like, hey, um, random question, but... (laughs) do you have HIV? And he's like, HIV? Hell, I got full-blown AIDS. What you talking about? <laughs> Just how you said that. No, that's like literally what he said, though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. And they're like, okay, so, like, the pieces are lining up. Yeah. So this is, this guy came at, like, 5 o'clock or whatever on the same day that she got the injection, and he had AIDS. And there's no sticker saying, like, where his vial of blood went. And it's in a box that it shouldn't be in. Right. And so the police are like, we saw you came to see the doctor on August 4th, like, blah, blah, blah. What'd you come to get blood drawn for? And he's like, oh, well, actually, uh, the doctor called me in to get blood drawn. I was so about to say, he called him. Uh-huh. He knew. He When he said, I'm going to ruin you. Uh-huh. And make knew. it to where no man will ever want you again, blah, uh-huh. blah, blah. That's exactly what he was doing. Mm-hmm. This was not just like a, hey, this Don guy's here. Let me just... No, it was a complete planned event. Yeah. Police have something, but they don't have something. Like, it's all circumstantial. Right. There's nothing that... I mean, like, could you could you convict this doctor of that in a court of law with what you've got? Absolutely not. So, in all of the forensic files glory, they go to scientists. And they're like, okay, so we know that DNA is kind of new. But, like, can you use DNA on this HIV and see, is it, like, the same? And they're like, not really, because of how when a virus goes into the host, it mutates. So not really, 
But there is this thing called phylogenics that traces like genetic relationships. Phylogenics is basically how they do like DNA sequencing for viruses. Okay. So they're like, okay, smarty smart scientists, can you do this for this and see, are these the same? So they get samples of blood from 32 other people with HIV in Lafayette area, including Don and Janice. And when they do the test, the phylogenic whatever testing, all of the other 32 people were completely different. They weren't related at all. But Don and Janice's samples were genetically similar. Wow. So they were able to prove that because they like mutated similarly, it was like a one in a million chance that they weren't the same. So in July of 1996, Richard was charged with attempted murder. Hell yeah. What an evil man. At the trial, not only did they prove that she had gotten the HIV from this patient, she also had hepatitis C. Now, Don did not have hepatitis C, but there was another patient that just two days before had come into Richard's clinic, and he also had had blood drawn, just like Don, that was never sent to the lab. Oh my gosh. So he basically, with a a bad needle, injected her with HIV and hep C. Wow. And this was the very first case in U.S. courts where they considered phylogenics as evidence. That's amazing, though. Mm -hmm. October 23rd of 1998, he was convicted of attempted second-degree murder and was sentenced to 50 years of hard labor. He appealed his sentence multiple times, and in 2015, he was up for parole after just 17 years, and it was unanimously denied. Yes. There's not a lot about what Janice is doing now. She's still alive from last thing I saw, and she did get remarried, and Richard is still serving time at the Elaine Hunt Correctional Institute. He is not eligible for early release or good behavior until 2023. So, just around the corner. Yeah. But he's been in since 1996. Yeah. Is that not the most bizarro case? Wow. Yes. And, oh my gosh. Because I think that there have been other people convicted. Like, if you knowingly have HIV and you knowingly spread it Mm -hmm. to other people, you should go to prison for that. Yes. And the thing is, is that HIV is not the death sentence that it used to be. You know, they, I mean, there's even the commercials, I can't remember what the drug is, but, and everybody in other, and everybody in other countries are like, y'all have commercials for your prescription drugs? (laughs) Yes, we do. Welcome to America. But they say though, that with that prescription drug now, your levels of HIV are like not even detectable on screens because it's lowers your viral load so much so like there i mean it's not what it used to be but back in 1994 that was a death sentence for her yeah well it's just something that you didn't have and then someone gave it to you knowingly absolutely and and to to kill you yes and to at the very least make your life hell yeah Oh my gosh, that is such a, like, not a nightmare, but like, that's something that goes through my brain because, again, I'm so untrusting of people. Yes. That I'm just like, well, yeah. And it's like, even, you know, you even start seeing somebody and they're like, yeah, I'm clean. Yeah, I've had a test. It's like, well, how do you know they actually had their test? It's like, that's why I'm like, 
if you're not in like a committed relationship with them, we're using a condom. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, I have an IUD, but we're using a condom because I don't know if you tell me the truth. Mm-hmm. But that's also why I couldn't be in a relationship like Richard's wife because yeah. you don't know, like, especially if you don't like a, have an agreement, but you like know he's sleeping around. It's like, how do you comfortably have sex with him knowing that he's sleeping around? Because how do you trust that you're not going to get an STI? Yeah. I'm just so glad that Janice is like living her life. Yes. She found her a new partner that she seems so happy with. Mm-hmm. And like, she's like, I'm just trying to move forward at this point. Yeah. How do you tell someone that? I don't know. But you can have a safe and healthy sex life with someone that does have HIV, that does have herpes and all of that. You know, you just have to oh, take yeah. precautions. But like, no, 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 that my ex who was my doctor, injected me. Yeah, it's like your first date. Do you just spill it all? Or are you just like, by the by? Yeah. I, I was mean, on forensic files. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, one, you have to be upfront about what you have. Okay. But then it's like how you got it is like, wait, what? I would be like, this sounds like a TV show. And they'd be like, yes, forensic files. Yeah, I was on one, actually. <laughs> yes. Actually, I think there was a medical mysteries or something like that that, that she was on, too. Oh, my gosh. Bizarro. (laughs) Okay, so give me yours. Is it is bizarre? No, I don't think anything can be. Like, I'm flabbergasted. I'm so, like, every time you were saying, like, guessing kind of what it was, I was like, please don't guess HIV. Please don't (laughs) guess No, I was thinking Lyme disease. (laughs) I was like, I'm so glad that, because when I, the first time I watched, I was like, oh, no. Like, I knew instantly. Not because I'm like, but just because, like, of course, it's something that catastrophic. Yeah. Her, you know, like, but the, the swollen lymph nodes and the flu-like symptoms and all that, I was like, oh, shit. So I was oh like, every time you guess something, <laughs> I was like, please don't think HIV, please. Because I wanted your reaction. Yeah. No. And then when you said she was pregnant, I was like, kids do that to you? This is like, no. And, but she was pregnant and also injected with. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, today I'm talking about the Hannah House in Indianapolis, Indiana. It's located at 3801 Madison Avenue, and it was built by Alexander Hannah. And do you want to know how many times I've said Alexander Hamilton in my fucking head? That's so funny. I said Alexander Graham Bell in my head. Oh, of course you would. Well, Alexander, he was born 1821 into a pretty wealthy family and so we're skipping forward until he was old enough to start apprenticing which he did and it was to a harness maker then he soon started his own harness making business and was pretty successful at it however he wanted more and around this time was the california gold rush so he thought hey why not so he headed to california in 1850 and was determined to strike it rich so many of your stories start with the california gold rush i know i know well his prospecting career was pretty good too He made enough money to buy in and become a co-owner of a ranch. He was hands-on, learned how to grow vegetables and grains there. But honestly, Alexander seemed to never be happy if he stayed somewhere too long. So he ended up selling his interest in the ranch and returned home. His father was the president of the Indiana Central Railroad, so he went to work for that company. Along with working for his father, he decided that he would purchase some land of his dad's. Because his dad had a shit ton of land. I told you they were pretty wealthy. 
So Alexander purchased 240 acres and he started farming on it. He raised animals and crops and again was successful in his endeavors. And also, just let me say, Alexander had many occupations over his life. He was a postmaster, a sheriff, a circuit court clerk. God, that was lard. That was lard? Lard. <laughs> Sorry. Wait, you looked at me and said lard. Thank you. <laughs> uh, that was hard. Anyway, the man was like a jack of all trades. But back to him buying the land and farming. It was in 1858 that he decided to build his dream home. It was more than just a house. It was a mansion. As Carrie says, I say mansion, but you know. Did I say exactly the same way? But it's just <laughs> weird when you say it. It had 24 rooms. It was two and a half stories. It had a smaller two-story wing that was connected to the main house as well. Alexander was focused on his career and exploring all life had to offer him for a while, and that caused him to marry later in life than most people. He was 51 when he met his wife, Elizabeth Jackson, and she was 37. They wanted to have a family that would fill up the rooms in the house, but unfortunately, it just wasn't how it ended up. Elizabeth was pregnant, and she gave birth to a child, but the baby was stillborn. Oh, God. There is a small unmarked gravestone at the family gravesite, but it only has the date on it because it was alive for like less than a day. But some people do a full burial and all of that for their kid. And unmarked, would it not have anything? Well, it didn't have the name. So here's something about Alexander and Elizabeth. They loved parties and celebrating with friends. And they probably loved entertaining because that's when their house was filled, you know, with love, laughter, music, all the things. But they were hiding a secret that could have ruined their reputations and honestly put them in jail. God, what is it? They were abolitionists. And where their house was located, it was perfect to be a station at the Underground Railroad. Now, remember, Alexander had purchased lots of acres, so it was fairly wooded and neighbors weren't right up their butt cracks. So the Hannahs would help hide the escaped slaves in their home and the place they would hide them was in their cellar. Now, it was a huge cellar because, you know, uh, they were rich. And so it wasn't like they were cramped in there, but it was still a cellar. So it was cold, dark, and lonely. Well, there's a story that said one night the Hannahs had a new set of people that arrived and they put them in the cellar, provided them with blankets and lanterns. Now, somehow during the night, the lanterns got knocked over, and sadly, the cellar was engulfed in flames pretty quickly, and the people were not able to make it out because of the flames and the smoke, and they passed away. Now, another sad part. The Hannahs wanted to give them a Christian burial, but if they did anything publicly, it would reveal their secret. But then also they could have been jailed if they found out this is what happened, why it happened, all the things. But also it would have given up their house as a station stop in the Underground Railroad. So they could have potentially fucked over a lot of people after this. So in order to save themselves and to keep the Underground Railroad running smoothly, they decided to bury the bodies in the floor of the cellar. Now, I will say that there has not been any proof of this story found, but I honestly don't know why people would make that up. And they did say like that they were against slavery. He was a Quaker, like his, like that was a whole thing about it. 
But some people said, well, slavery did become illegal, so why would they not say it then? Like, we were part of the Underground Railroad. But also, what if people aren't those type of people? I mean, fuck off, but I see what you're saying. But, I mean, like, no, if you're not like, well, back in the day, this is what I did. Okay, I thought you meant, like, they didn't want to, like, alienate their friends because their friends may not be against slavery is what I thought you were saying. Oh, yeah, I mean, that too, but, like, not everyone's just going to be like, and this is what I did. Yes, completely agree. No, and especially if they're doing this, I feel like they're the ones who aren't going to look for, put this on TikTok about me doing a good deed. Right, because people who actually do good deeds don't do that. Right. But you can see where this lays the foundation for some hauntings later. And to add to that, Elizabeth died in the house in 1888. She was 53. And Alexander did not remarry. He died a few years later in 1895 at the age of 73. And then for four years, the house sat abandoned. Then in 1899, Roman Ayler, I think is how you say his name. He was a German immigrant who owned a jewelry business super successful. He bought the house and 21 acres with it. And that house stayed in his family until 1968. And then the last six years of that, it was vacant, but, and then they finally just sold it off. Then from 1968 to 1978, the O'Briens rented the house. And so they lived in the house and ran an antique shop out of the rest of it. And then in 1980, it was actually used as a haunted house. Uh, It was a fundraiser for the JCs. And now it's a museum. It offers tours and hosts weddings. But let's get to the hauntings, right? Well, first, the Hannah House has a nickname of the house that reeks of death. Because sometimes there's a smell of decaying flesh, something rotten. But then other days it's normal. And then other days you smell something sweet and floral like roses or lavender. There are the normal haunting things, cold spots, disembodied voices, doors opening and closing on their own, unexplained noises. And the house, again, affects the electrical equipment like batteries being drained quickly, cameras not operating correctly, all the things. Both Alexander and Elizabeth have been seen, mostly on the second floor, and Elizabeth likes to look outside of an upstairs window. People said that they've heard cries that sound like a little baby crying, so they attribute that to the stillborn baby. Early one evening, Miss O'Brien was looking up towards the second floor and caught a glimpse of a man in a black suit, and he was walking across the upstairs hallway. Well, the antique store was still open, so she thought... A customer had scooted by her, so she went upstairs toward him to guide him back down to the shop. When she reached the top of the stairs, the man had vanished into thin air. Then there was another time that Mr. O'Brien, he saw a transparent apparition who was standing in an archway on the stairs. And he said that the person was like old-fashioned, had a black suit, and when he went to move forward just a little bit, the apparition disappeared. Mr. O'Brien also witnessed the door to the attic open by itself, and he saw the handle turn by itself. It wasn't just like, whoosh, a gust of wind. Yeah. In a documentary on YouTube called The Haunting of Hannah House, they talk about a woman who would pass the Hannah House every morning on her way to work, And she would look at the yard and there was a man standing in the yard in period clothing, waving at her while she drove by. 
And in that same documentary, they said that David Elder, who was the owner of the house for a period, he would have bands perform on the lawn. And there was this band there and the lady had pulled the van up to the front of the house so they could load their equipment up. And when she looked at the house, she saw a woman in the window in period clothing looking down at her. David Elder said that he always felt like he was being watched, especially in the basement area. And one night he heard the sound of breaking glass in the cellar, but he said it sounded like a huge commotion. So he went to go check it out because he thought some of the neighborhood kids had gotten in or a burglar, something. But what it was, there were some fruit jars in the basement that they had like, I mean, not canned, but like essentially canned. I'm not that country, so I don't know what that is. But you know what I mean? Like they they have it all done and they, I don't know, it's their storage. Yeah. Well, one of the barrel of the fruit jars had been tipped over, but there was no one around who could have done it. There was no way that no one was in there. No one had left. You know, so it's like, how did this tip over? It wasn't just like one had moved or anything. It was a barrel of them. Well, you know, there's always phantom footsteps in all the haunted houses. And this house actually has the staircase carpeted. So you would think that there wouldn't be footsteps going up the stairs, but people have witnessed footsteps, loud and soft, traveling up and down the stairs. Allie Austin, who is a tour guide, she said that the manager was setting up for an open house and there was a flashlight in the middle of the table with a tablecloth under it. And both of them flew across the room and no one else was inside that room or the house at all for that matter. And it was like, okay, who just did that? When the O'Briens first moved in, they needed to paint and stuff because the house had been vacant for a bit. They hired a painter, but he didn't last that long because he said that the pictures would move on the wall when he passed and sometimes doors would open too. He said he heard someone say, you will not paint my house. And then another one that said, do a good job painting my house. But no one was around him. So he was totally spooked, but money is money. But that was until Miss O'Brien, she was bringing him some coffee, you know, being a good host, all the things. So she had had the cup on the tray, some sugar, whatever, laid the coffee tray down on the counter. And as soon as she did, the spoon went flying and the painter was like, "Mm, you know what? no money's worth this because now it's like moving the objects at me because like the spoon kind of flew in his direction. So he was like, (laughs) yeah, no, I can't finish this job. I don't blame him. No, me either. So their son was like, all right, I'll finish the painting because, you know, they needed to open up their shop and everything. Well, the son was working his first night and it was fine. He felt someone was watching him. So it was kind of unnerving, but nothing terrible. But the second night, he decided that he would bring his wife and two daughters with him because extra hands and, you know, extra people. It's not so quiet. Maybe he won't have that feeling anymore. Well, he put his wife and one daughter to work, but the youngest daughter was just playing by herself. Or so they thought. They heard her talking to someone on the stairs. So he went into the hall to see who was on the stairs. Like, was someone in the house? It could be dangerous. But she was just sitting on the stairs looking up toward the landing. And he asked her, like, who are you talking to? And she pointed up to the stairs and said, him? Oh, uh uh-uh. Yeah. So they asked her to describe him and she was just like, old? (laughs) So they, 
you know, we're just like, okay, what do you do? But she said the man went upstairs. And so she went back to playing with her like dolls and stuff. And people chalk that up to being Alexander Hannah. In the cellar, there have been lots of experiences where people have heard disembodied voices and even moaning and wailing like someone in pain. So they attribute that to the people who died there when they were waiting to be transferred on the Underground Railroad. And sometimes the bumps and sounds became too much. And one time, it was at night, Mr. O'Brien was trying to watch TV in one of the upstairs bedrooms when loud groans were coming from upstairs and he just got annoyed and he ended up yelling down the hall and he was like, stop your belly aching. And it did quiet down. Oh my God. Yes. But can you just imagine like, oh my gosh, because at this point there wasn't a DVR, so you couldn't just like fast forward, rewind. So um, like you just missed whatever you were watching because of sounds or whatever. Uh Uh-uh. On IndianaHauntedHouses.com, a person said, I attended a tour and a haunted house at this location years ago. While in one of the upstairs rooms on the tour, I was touched by what felt like a child running past and bumping into me. In the basement, I was grabbed on the forearm by an unseen hand. There is definite activity here. And on that same site, another person said, I visited the Hannah house with my family back in the late 60s when I was maybe six years old. It must have been an open house. There are many people there touring the house. It was a sunny day, as I recall. Two things I remember. I have a memory of a rocking chair on the porch rocking itself. The second is that I was in a line of people going down the stairs into the basement, and I remember becoming hysterical with fright, even though I was surrounded by adults. I had to be taken out of line and calmed down. I never set foot in that house again until about five years ago when the house hosted the Indiana Paranormal Meet and Greet. I toured the house and finally made it into that scary basement, but had no experiences. I did find out that the rocking chair is one of the reported phenomena at the house, so that really was a real memory. So for two years, from 1980 to 1982, the Hannah House was used as the annual haunted house project for the Indianapolis JCs. They would take kids on a tour of, you know, the old house, but they would add in some fake jump scares and stuff just to make it a little more haunted. Well, while taking a break from that project, the coordinator and some workers were sitting in the summer kitchen, which was located right next to the staircase, kind of by where like the quote unquote servant quarters would be. Suddenly, some loud scratching sounds were heard coming from inside the staircase in that landing wall. And everyone was just like, hold on, what is making that sound? They couldn't find anything that was making that sound. In October of 1981, a TV crew went to the Hannah House to film a segment on the JC's Halloween house. And there is a cameraman. He stood at the dining room doorway. And from there, you can see the chandelier. So he made like a little offhand comment about like, how creepy would it be right now if the chandelier started to swing? And like on cue, it started swinging at about a six inch arc. At the end of filming that segment, the last shot that that same cameraman, he stood in the dining room doorway and he was going to film the host of the segment who was standing in front of a propped up coffin. Well, suddenly a picture hanging on the wall above the coffin fell down, made a huge commotion. So, of course, they're going to check because how the hell did this picture fall? 
Well, they looked, the nail was still like secure in the wall. It was upright. It hadn't just like slumped over or anything. And the string on the back of the picture wasn't broken. So that meant that something had to lift the picture up in order to get it to fall off the wall. And I don't know if it was like trying to hit that host or what, or just be like, hello, I'm here. They said, get up out of my house. I'm trying to sleep. (laughs) But I just thought it was funny. It was that same cameraman and he was just like, wouldn't that be amazing if this happened? And then like, could you imagine his butt got so tight when the chandelier started to actually swing? See, and I'm like, of the opposite, like, oh, of course he said it and then it did it. He's probably got like a, and it made it go. (laughs) Like it's a setup. It could be. But that is the Hannah house. Well, that was a sad fucking start. I know. I hope it's not true. But I do definitely want to believe that they were part of the Underground Railroad. Me too. Like, I'm choosing to believe that. But the guy being like, oh my God, wouldn't it be so crazy if this chandelier right here started shaking? (laughs) I said, if this chandelier started... Okay, okay, okay. Oh my God, it's doing it. (laughs) Like, Alma, check your battery. You were supposed to start swaying already. True. They definitely dealt with some fucking tragedy, though. They did. I'm surprised, too. She was so much younger than him that he outlived her. I know. But at least they got, like, 20 years together. Yeah. I I thought it was sweet that he didn't remarry. Not that it was sweet, but just, like, maybe she was, like, the love of his life. I think so. I think that people, like, when you really do wait later in marriage, like, you really do find that person. I mean, not that people who are married young can't find that person, but it's like, I just feel like he knew who he was. She knew who she was. Like, they were meant to be. Yeah. Especially because he was, like, such a wandering soul. You know, he wasn't one to settle down, wasn't one to stay in one spot a long time. Yeah. Well, hopefully those aren't their ghosts and they're resting in peace. And hopefully Janice is living her best life in spite of dickhead Richard. For real, a dick. And maybe he won't get out in 2023, but, like, if somebody's good at remembering stuff to look it up, let me know. Because I'm going to forget. Yes. Thank y'all so much for listening and supporting us. There are so many ways to support us. We always talk about Patreon. And if you want that extra content you heard, go to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. You can also support our advertisers by going to those websites with our promo code and checking out what they have. But we know that not everybody has those financial abilities. So the best way to support us is by listening to the episodes, but also um, writing reviews and sharing. So thank you all so much for all you do to support us. And remember, creep it real and don't don't get scared. scared.